So the Lord has Paul write, I have applied all things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. We, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we, re, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and refuge of all things. Let us briefly pray. Heavenly Father, we have a very simple request today. Our request is open our ears and give us sight that we may see Jesus. And now, Father, let the words of our pastor's mouth and and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. I think I'm single this week. <laughs> no. <laughs> my, my, <laughs> I, uh, I am learning, maybe isn't the right word. I am finding out uh, how to model what it is to be a godly single man in my wife's absence. There you go. That's a good way to put it, I think. Um, Paul, well, this is in 1 Corinthians, but not until a later passage in 1 Corinthians. He encourages those uh, who are unmarried and widows and widow, widowers to remain as such because they can devote more of their time to the Lord, to prayer, to fasting, uh, to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and to serving Him. Uh, not to be like a single person in the world, or according to the world, which is not so godly, but to be a single man or woman in Christ. And in that same passage, he says to husbands and wives, do not withhold yourselves from one another, except when you agree, so that you may, for a time, live like a single Person, pursue the Lord and serve the Lord to the to the fullest of your ability. And so, while my wife is absent, I get the chance to do that, and it is great. And I miss them terribly, <laughs> my wife and my son terribly. But y'all, it is it is a every season is a blessing from the Lord. Amen. 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 Uh, I I'm looking forward to this passage of scripture. Um, it's fairly a fairly simple passage of scripture, but powerful. Uh, Paul. Uh, he's he's driving the message like like a hammer. It's 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 blunt, a blunt instrument used for driving the point home, <laughs> and he does it very well. Let's pray again, and we'll dive into this passage of scripture. Thank you, Albert, for reading this. Lord, I want to thank you for everything you do. I want to thank you for your forgiveness. I want to thank you for being our all in all. So that unlike the world, we don't have to to live like needy people seem to live. Lord, what a blessing it is to, to be reminded at certain times that you are our, our only true refuge. And what it means to serve you with all of our gumption, all of who we are. Lord, be with us now as we come to this passage of Scripture.
Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds that understand what you have to say to us. And Lord, through the proclamation of your beautiful word, conform us more to the image of your Son. Lord, we love you. And we are here to sit at your feet and to learn from you. Thank you for this opportunity this morning. And thank you for helping us to prioritize the Lord's day above every selfish pursuit, above all of our ambition, all of the things we think we have to do. Thank you for helping us to honor you by being here this morning. Lord, we love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Paul is... It's nice to be back in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? Seems like it's been a whole year. (laughs) Paul has been writing to the church at Corinth, one of the unhealthiest churches in the New Testament. Perhaps the unhealthiest church in the New Testament. Uh, The church is divided over doctrine and practice, and Paul is writing to them in order to increase their maturity in Christ. And through the uh, increasing maturity of the church, Paul's prayer is that they become unified through maturity, not unified through watered-down doctrine leading up to this point. Paul has uh, shared how the uh, pastor ought to regard his congregation as holy in the Lord's sight, despite every imperfection as beautiful and as and as holy in the sight of the Lord. And Paul has also shared how the congregation ought to regard her pastor as a holy man of God, a man set apart for the service of God, a man who is a slave to the congregation for the congregation's good and a slave to God for God's glory. So the pastor is a slave to the congregation for the congregation's good and a slave to God for God's glory to different types of slavery in view there. Paul has encouraged the congregation not to be puffed up in its knowledge, not to be arrogant in what it thinks it knows and the certain theological positions it it takes because those things are divisive. Instead, it has, uh, Paul has encouraged um, sincere dialogue, <laughs> conversation. Do we know what that's like? Sincere dialogue, uh, conversation, a, a sincere pursuit of the truth and of the knowledge of God because that breeds maturity and maturity breeds unity according to Paul and now we find ourselves in verse 6 of chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians now these things all of the things that I just mentioned these are the things Paul has in view now these things brethren I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake. Now there you will notice a difference between what was read already this morning and what the New American Standard says. And the New American Standard makes an addition here, the word figuratively, uh, figuratively applied, uh, where some of your translations will simply say, I have applied. Uh, There we need a word study. The Greek word Paul uses here is a word that sounds something like me task matizo so good luck with that you don't have to remember that I just want you to know that I know it's there okay <laughs> this word can be translated accurately as only applied but the word literally means to transfer transfer some truth by fiction. This word can refer to something like satire. And this word is why the New American Standard adds the word figuratively in the translation. Figuratively applied uh, is um, meant to bring understanding to us as to what kind of application this is. Uh, now this word being used in the Greek to transfer truth by fiction, which can refer to satire, it can also refer to allegory and it can broadly refer to figurative language of any kind. Uh, We need to realize something about the Apostle Paul here and his letter. We are to interpret the Bible literally. Literally there meaning a historical grammatical interpretation of the text. This type of interpretation does not negate the use of figurative language. So there are some who want to only read the Bible literalistically which is different from reading 
reading the Bible literally, right? But when the Bible tells us that the Bible is using figurative language, or in this case, a figurative way of applying a doctrinal truth, in this case, the unity of Christ, the, the, the singleness of Christ, the fact that Christ is not divided, therefore the church is not to be divided uh, by trivial things. Um, the way Paul is applying that is a figurative application. Uh, and Paul tells us here, he's doing this figuratively. And there are many places in the Bible, Old Testament and New, where figurative language is used. That does not negate a literal interpretation, but it does mean we should not always interpret the Bible literalistically. Those are two very different things. The Bible uses figurative language, in this case, a figurative application. Paul writes, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Why would Paul need to apply the doctrinal truth, Christ is one, Christ is not divided? Why would Paul need to apply this to himself and Apollos uh, using this method of figurative application for the sake of the church? Isn't that a great question to ask here? And Paul says, this is how you regard us. This is how we regard you. We are foolish for Christ. We are being made public spectacles for, for the sake of Christ's name. And he's making all of his application here basically to himself for the sake of the church. I, I do something like this all the time. When I am making application from Scripture, I will often take the doctrinal truths that we see in Scripture or even the application that is made in Scripture, and I will apply it to me, or I will apply it in general to a group of people for the sake of the congregation. That simply means I'm not up here calling anyone out, which is probably why Paul is doing this, right? He probably has particular people in mind. Yeah, this person needs to know about this, okay? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, so-and-so struggles with this. Um, and, you know, that person drinks probably a little too much. I need to address that. And Paul here, for the sake of the congregation, he applies these truths he knows need to be applied to individuals. He applies them to himself. This is an act that honors the congregation as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a way of applying the text doctrinal truth in a way that doesn't push people away from the body of Christ. This is a very, a very loving way of applying the text of Scripture. And so while I am preaching, while anyone is preaching, while any elder of the church is preaching or teaching or seeking to apply the text, especially to individual situations from such a public platform as the pulpit, we have the precedence in Scripture to generalize that application or for me to apply it to myself, hoping that the Holy Spirit is leading you to make application to, to yourselves too, so that from the pulpit we, we do not have to point fingers. We do not have to call people out. So we figuratively apply what we see in the Scripture. That's all Paul is doing here. He's saying, this, this is how it applies to me. Now, because you are intelligent people figure out how it applies to you too. No one is off the hook because particular application isn't made to him or her. Yeah, we would be here for a long time if I was, tell me the intimate details of your life so I can make appropriate particular application in this circumstance to every single person in the room. First of all, you probably don't want me knowing everything about your lives, okay? Second of all, that is not the example we have in the text of Scripture. And on those few occasions when, call, when Paul does call someone out by name, that person has taken the place of a very public teacher. That person has taken it upon themselves to teach the law, to desire to teach the law, but not understand the implications of what he or she is, is teaching. And so on those few occasions, Paul calls someone out publicly. But for the average Christian... We trust you to make application for yourselves. That's what Paul is saying here. Corinth is an unhealthy church, Paul says, but you are holy and I, and I love you. 
and I want to pour into you. Let me make figurative application to myself, trusting that you will hear this and be able to make similar application to yourselves. I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written so that no one of you will become arrogant, puffed up in your knowledge in behalf of one against the other. So Paul is not only applying this figuratively, he's also applying it as an example he lives by. The church is drawing dividing lines based on inexplicit doctrine. They're drawing dividing lines based on the personalities they follow. They're drawing dividing lines based on their practice. This is denominationalism at its finest. And Paul here says, the way we apply the scriptures to ourselves and the way we, meaning Paul and Apollos and the apostles and probably Sosthenes too, since Sosthenes is a co-author with Paul in this letter, says, we have applied this to ourselves. And we are setting the example for you so that you may learn not to exceed what is written. This is the the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura right here in the text. That scripture alone is entirely authoritative for life and ministry and entirely sufficient for all of life and ministry. Scripture alone provides everything we need to live life and it provides everything we need to have faith in Christ to receive eternal life. Scripture does that. And Paul here says, so that you may learn not to exceed what is written. Now I have a question for us. If we are not to exceed what is written, what are we doing anywhere learning? Some of you are a little scared right now. (laughs) What are we doing learning silly stuff like philosophy and and science and and thinking about doctrines that just aren't explicit in the text. What are we doing about that? Why why are we learning how to manage our, our households and why are we learning psychology? Why are we learning any of that other stuff if we are not to exceed what is written? That is not what is on Paul's mind here. <laughs> okay. See how easy it is to misapply the text. Paul has on his mind here the division of the church, building the church up into maturity. So when he talks about not exceeding what is, what is written, he's talking about drawing dividing lines. Do not, do not draw dividing lines based on something that actually isn't that perspicuous in the text. Don't draw dividing lines because people have different millennial views than your own, since we're walking through Revelation right now. <laughs> Don't draw dividing lines based on things that are inexplicit, like whether or not pedo-baptism, the the baptism of children, or the dedicating of children is acceptable biblically. Don't draw dividing lines based on that, um, because it's not explicit there in the text. Do not draw dividing lines based on really specific polity, church government. Don't draw dividing lines based on that. It's not actually that explicit in the text of Scripture. What is explicit is a church ought to have deacons and elders, and the church is explicit on their roles. And beyond that... Churches differ, and that's okay. Okay? Amen? Amen? Do not draw dividing lines based on whether or not grape juice is an acceptable substitute for wine during communion. Don't, don't draw dividing lines based on those things, because the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly. Paul is not here saying, don't study philosophy. Paul studied philosophy. <laughs> He's trained in in Hellenistic philosophy and he uses it in his writing. So he can't be instructing the church not to do that. (laughs) He is saying, don't make it a divisive issue. He's not telling the church that science is evil. Stay away from that. No, I hope he's not saying that. I love science. He's not telling the church to... To not use common sense, just blindly, you know, do exactly what the Bible says. 
blindly being the key word. Do what the Bible says. Not blindly. Know, know the reasons. And, and always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Those are the instructions in Scripture. Do not exceed what is written in order to draw dividing lines. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority. Scripture alone is entirely sufficient. That doesn't mean there's nothing else worth looking at. It means Scripture is entirely sufficient. If all you have is the Bible, that's enough. Scripture alone is authoritative. Scripture alone is entirely sufficient. And this, the sufficiency of Scripture is something that our current society has forsaken. So in, in churches today, you'll hear all the time, yep, the Bible is my authority. The Bible's my authority. The Bible's my authority. What we struggle with today is the sufficiency of Scripture. Do you really believe the Word is entirely sufficient? And the way that most churches operate would indicate, no. Even if we say that with our mouths, it's like, no, we need this other stuff. We need to be really attractive. We need to have cool ministries. But the Bible is entirely sufficient. Do not exceed what is written. Don't choose a church based on the programs offered. Choose a church based on the the word. It is sufficient. Now I have another question. And you're going to love this one. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> if sola scriptura, scripture alone is authoritative and sufficient, why the heck do we have a preacher? Mm. If Scripture alone is entirely authoritative and sufficient, why do we even bother going to church? Wouldn't it be enough for me to have a daily quiet time with Jesus? If you were perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Scripture is entirely sufficient. We are not. Okay? Scripture is entirely sufficient. We are not. There are two major realizations to make here. First is we need the community of faith because we are not sufficient. And proper biblical interpretations happen, happens in, in a community of faith where people are reasoning together and bringing different ideas to the table, which, by the way, is one of the things I love about the church at Sunsites, this community of believers. We bring different ideas to the table and we don't condemn people for holding to one idea or another as, as long as it is orthodox. Okay? <laughs> holding to one idea or another. And we certainly don't, based on things that are inexplicit, say... There's the door. That is, that's what discipleship is. And that's what the church is all about. That's what ecclesia is, is all about. And this word that refers to ecclesia, the, the, the church, this, this word that was used by Greeks in the first century to refer to the, the Jewish synagogue. You know that the church is basically the Gentile continuation of the Jewish synagogue? Like that's what the church is. And the synagogue was a place where people would go and exchange ideas, theological ideas, and ask questions and wrestle, wrestle with God. And that's what we are doing. And if we're not doing that, if our doctrine, if our statement of belief is so, so strict, that even when it comes to those things that are not explicit in the Bible, we are showing people the door. There, there might be a problem, and we might be more of a cult than a church. Do you understand? And this is what Paul desires from the church. The second thing I want to realize is the necessity of elder plurality in the church. So if lone wolf Christianity doesn't get there, if we need the community of believers because we are not sufficient... The Bible is, we are not. It doesn't make any sense to have one teacher who bears the entire responsibility for, for study and who bears the entire responsibility for instructing the whole congregation without having the opportunity to himself be questioned. It makes no sense because that makes the preacher a lone wolf Christian. 
and a spiritual guru. And the responsibility falls on him to properly interpret the text, which can't happen apart from community. Why? Because all people are insufficient, even though our word, the word we are given is sufficient. And that is why the, the pastor, the teaching elder of the church, needs other elders to come alongside him to hold him accountable so he doesn't exceed what is written. Verse 6. And so that they can pour into him and they can wrestle with doctrine together. The elders of this church are about to start walking through the 1689 London Baptist Confession and, and to see if that might be a proper confessional statement for our local church. And as we walk through it, please, please pray for us because if there is anything in there that exceeds what is written, we don't want it. But if it is a, a proper confession... And a, and a stronger confession than the, the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message. Because we need a stronger confession than that. You can, you, can, uh, you can believe like Satan believes and still be a Southern Baptist today. It's not a very strong confession of faith. But we don't want it to exceed what is written. So please be praying for your elders. It's, we want you to pray for us. These are the, the two things we realize. No Christian is on his or her own. And even the elders of the church are accountable to one another and to the congregation, and not accountable by any standard, but accountable not to exceed what is written. I, I have another way to put this. Don't call sin what the Bible doesn't call sin. Oh, we're good at that one, aren't we? And we're, we're good at... I'm talking in general here. <laughs> Don't call sin what isn't sin. We're good at drawing dividing lines based on those things. So is the church at Corinth. And... Don't, ma- don't major on minor doctrines. And don't minor on major doctrines. We are good at doing that, and we are really good at drawing dividing lines over those things as well. When we exceed what is written, when we major on the minors and minor on the majors, when we start calling sin what the Bible doesn't call sin, Paul makes it very clear here, that leads to arrogance. A, a, a puffing up of the brain. And arrogance leads to isolation, which Paul has already revealed here in 1 Corinthians before we get to this point. And arrogance leads to division. So it is unsound doctrine and minoring on the majors, majoring on the minors, and drawing divisions based on practice that isn't, isn't clearly described or prescribed in the text of Scripture, this is the stuff that leads to the division of a local church. Could you imagine if our, if our standard for our local church was God's standard for our local church? Like if it was that way perfectly. Um, I know some people who place way more of a burden on the church congregation and on the elders of the church and on the deacons of the church and on um, the ministries of the church and the programs of the church and on the music of the church. And they, they place way more of a religious burden on the church than God does. There is something wrong if we require more than God does. And that's what Paul is getting at here. That's what the church at Corinth is is doing. May we never require more than God does. May we never require more of our elders than God does. May we never require more of our deacons than God does. And may we never require more of our brothers and sisters in Christ than, than God does. Do not become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. And hopefully through the the preaching and teaching ministry here at the church at Sunsites and, and through our, all of our discipleship that we do, the building up of one another, hopefully through that we are all growing into greater maturity. No matter how mature I am or how mature you are in the faith, we, we are not fully grown, none of us. We all have progress to make in Christ. And hopefully we are growing into that maturity, forsaking our, our arrogance. And that maturing process builds unity and close-knitness and relationships by grace in the church, which is wonderful. 
Verse 7. For who regards you as superior? (laughs) Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? Okay. We're getting into teaching here. We're getting into these dividing lines that people are drawing. So, Mr. Pastor Guy comes (laughs) to teach. I'm going to tell you something that you have never heard before. I am the expert. Listen to my wise teaching. You know right off the bat, like if somebody's starting out this way, it's probably not a wise man standing in front of you, okay? And Paul, he lets him have it. He is, he's being a little sarcastic here. Who regards you as superior? Look, if people are puffed up in their knowledge, if people are, are arrogant, they don't regard anyone else as superior anyway. And division comes because I don't think you're superior, but you're trying to be superior. And you don't think I'm superior, but I'm, I'm presenting myself as somehow superior to, to others. Who made you superior? Who made you God? Those are some other ways to put this, right? Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? Just driving humility home. If someone is teaching sound doctrine, doctrine that is in the Bible, that person has received what he or she is teaching from God. It is written right here. We should not be standing up in the pulpit and teaching anything that is original. That's not what God desires. God desires His Word be read and explained and applied. That's it. We're not here to come up with something new. And if you, if you have a Twitter account, perhaps you saw on Easter a tweet that came out from a really popular preacher recently elected a, a senator, either, either state or, or national. And he, he said, I, I'm going to teach something new about the meaning of Easter. No! There's, we don't teach anything that's original. Now, it will sound new to some people who perhaps haven't heard an expository sermon before. But we are, we are here to expose the Word of God. And as the Word of God is exposed, it exposes us. And it exposes our sin and insecurities and insufficiencies. And, and then we feel conviction and we, we feel the weight of sin bearing down on us. And then God says, you're forgiven. Wonderful. God is so good. Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? You're not teaching anything new. Why should should people honor you as a spiritual guru? The Apostle Paul doesn't even claim to teach something new. I resolve to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. That's, That's Paul's mantra here in 1 Corinthians. And if you did receive it from God, and it's written down for you, if you did receive it by way of Scripture, by way of God speaking through the prophets, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why do you boast as if this is original to you? The gospel was here before you were born. The gospel will be proclaimed after you die. Get off your high horse, super Christian. Verse 8. You... You don't have to pretend to have anything new. And here's where Paul also becomes encouraging. So he admonishes, get off your high horse. And then right after the admonish, admonishing, he, he encourages, he, he builds up. You are already fill, filled. Because it's not original to you, that means God has already provided it to you. This is why I can trust that you are in Christ, even though you got a little full of yourself for a minute there. You are already filled you have already become rich. Why? Because you have Christ and you have His Word. You didn't have to work for it. You didn't have to gain it. You didn't have to come up with new ideas. You already had this. You've already become rich. You have become kings without us. Without us. Paul planted this church. Paul's still investing in this church, but he's been gone for a while at this point. He's been absent from the congregation and God has still been working. Paul recognizes, even though this is an unhealthy church, God has still been working in the midst of the congregation. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings 
so that we also might reign with you. Paul, an, an apostle, a high and lifted up apostle, doesn't say so that we may reign over you. Look at this. So that we also might reign with with you. Man, how beautiful is that? And Paul's whole reason for discipling the congregation is in hopes that everyone would would become as mature as him, which is humbling for, for any preacher or teacher to, to say. Like my my desire is to have peers, not subjects. Yeah? That's what Paul is saying here to the church at Corinth, this really unhealthy church, this really divisive. And where many of the people in the congregation are complaining against him, he says, I desire peers, not subjects. Let's reign together in Christ. And Christ is the only head there. I have a different office. We are peers. That's Paul's desire. And anyone who who takes the pulpit, anyone who becomes an elder of the church, I hope I hope that's his desire as well. To raise people up to be peers so that we are partners in the gospel, one in the gospel, not one person ruling over another, which is arrogance and causes division. We are mutual servants. Since it's okay for us to think about science, I can say this is a symbiotic relationship. (laughs) We are all part of one body in Christ. There is not a body of elders and then the body of the church. We are one church, one body, discipling one another, pouring into one another, heightening the understanding and enlightenment of of one another. And this is where interpretation happens in the local church. The local church is a marketplace of ideas and we hear the ideas and we consider them according to Scripture. And we look at the Word to see if what we have heard works. You are already filled and you have already become rich. You have become kings without us and indeed I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. Then verse 9, For I think... Paul is really reflecting on his life. Considering sola scriptura, scripture alone is authoritative, scripture alone is sufficient, Paul's now thinking about why God has made him an apostle. <laughs> why, hmm, why are there preachers? And why, why are the preachers of the church, why do they take the position of public theologians? And I think in Scripture we see that the pastor of the church is a public theologian. Paul says, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. Tell me something about biblical faith. Is it to the exaltation of people or to the exaltation of Christ? Christ. So if anyone is raised to the public eye, made a pastor, the elder of a church, deacons, deacons got it good, humble servants, little recognition for their work. By the way, thank your deacons for all the work that they do. Amen. Much Amen. of it goes unseen. Amen. But those who are raised up to the public eye, I wish I knew this when I got into ministry. Nobody told me this. <laughs> those who are raised up to the public eye, those who are lifted high, so to speak, they must be humble. Paul knows this. He says, I, I, think, I think God has condemned us to death. I think we are condemned to death. God has raised us up, recognized us as condemned to death. Paul sees martyrdom in his future and the future of 
all the apostles, save one, who was exiled. Another sort of humbling. Paul says, because we are raised up to such a position in the public eye, God will humble us because Christ is the only one to be exalted. And if we are humble at heart, God still needs to humble us in, in the eyes of our hearers, those who follow our teaching. Everyone who is raised up to the office of elder, everyone who is raised up to be a, a public preacher, a public theologian, must be humbled. And if he is humble at heart, I hope I am humble at heart, and if he is humble at heart, he must be humbled in the eyes of others so that others do not worship Him. Now this humbling happens several different ways as far as I can tell. Paul sees martyrdom in his future. Preachers become frail and unable, unable to exercise their, their wit eventually. And they become public spectacles in that way having to forsake their position as preachers eventually in life and ultimately succumb to death. There are those preachers who succumb to moral failure. They're tempted and they sin and they are no longer able to continue. There are preachers who succumb to apostasy, forsake the faith. And you wonder why all this has to happen and why it seems uh, there's a, a whole group of preachers that I, that I came to love. And they all seem to be going woke and forsaking sound doctrine now. And I'm like, God, why does it seem that these guys are all forsaking sound doctrine when they were so good at preaching? And they used to be so expository and now they're just following culture. Why do women who gain large followings like, like Beth Moore, who, who used to be sound in her doctrine, why do, why, do they, why do they follow culture? Why do, why do men like, like Vody Bauckham, who remain sound in his doctrine despite culture trying to, trying to woo him and sway him, and he remains steadfast with this gravitas that only Vody Bauckham could have? Why do men like that suffer the health crises that he is currently suffering and, and looking down the barrel of, of death? We, we need him. And Paul is saying here, no, you don't. Why do those men who become so popular ultimately succumb to moral failure, unsound doctrine, apostasy, or death? Why do we see the frailness of our fathers? You realize how God has put together the family? My dad was the strongest man I knew. And I watched him, watched him give his life over again to alcoholism and become, and become frail. And now he's one of the weakest men I can think of. Why, do, why does that happen? It's hard to see parents and grandparents grow old and become frail and get sick and not be able to do anything. It's hard to have a teacher in school that we see as this amazing person, this idol, and then we grow up and find out, oh, they're only human after all. Every day our heroes fall. You ever think that God does that on purpose? So that Christ is the only one exalted? And when it becomes my time to fall... I hope it is not by moral failure or unsound doctrine. I hope it is by physical frailness and ultimately death. We should come to grips with that while we're young. So one of my mentors tells me who's sitting in the back, back there. God is doing that on purpose, and Paul here is making it known. We're made a public spectacle so that you don't worship us. Stop worshiping me, y'all. Stop putting me on a pedestal. 
You are rich without us. We are peers. This is what I desire. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. There's a difference here. Those who are in the public eye are... They're seen as foolish by so many people. But those who live quiet lives in humility, they are seen as prudent in Christ. There's a difference there. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished. But we are without honor. Why? Because we are made spectacles. Because we are in the public eye. We are we are without honor. You know how much slander there is out there for people in the public eye? A, a, a lot. If you don't know, it's a lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to this present hour, we are both hungry. We, we make sacrifices for this. Uh, the preacher of a church does not... Uh, anyone in the public eye, the apostles, uh, they can't indulge themselves and enjoy God's creation to the extent that the congregation does because they are in public view and people are quick to accuse. For this hour we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed. We are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. And when we are Reviled. Uh, here we see someone gives up a lot. The sacrifice is much to be an elder of the church of Jesus Christ. Someone who is not called to that and empowered by the Holy Spirit for that kind of self-denial, which is the same sort of self-denial is not required for every Christian but it is forced upon the elders of the church, according to Paul here, and the apostles of the church, according to Paul here. If you're not called to that, don't do it. If, if there is anything at all that can dissuade you from becoming an elder of the church, be dissuaded, please, God. <laughs> because without the Holy Spirit, you will not be able Somebody said, I think I'm called to be a pastor. And his pastor said, Let me tell you every reason you shouldn't be a pastor. And if, at the end of the ten hours we will be together, I'm explaining you why you shouldn't be a pastor. If you still want to become a pastor, then you're probably called. <laughs> okay? This isn't a position that anybody can be forced into. We must have the desire, and it must be a desire given by the Holy Spirit. If you can be dissuaded, be dissuaded from such a from such a position. When we are reviled, we bless. The apostle, the elder here, doesn't doesn't have quite the privilege of just remaining silent or even talking badly about others that maybe Joe Christian can get away with. Okay? When we are reviled, we bless in return. We're in the public eye. We bless in return. When we are persecuted, we endure. Not complaining about it, not complaining about not having enough money, not complaining about persecution, violence being done to us, not complaining even about slander. We endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate, which means when I'm slandered, as an elder of a church, this, this means that God puts it in me to go to the person slandering me and say, hey, can we make this right? Even if I haven't done anything wrong. We have become... Paul says, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Outliers. That's the position of an elder. An outlier. An out, sort of an outcast. In society, and even among the body of believers, there, there are things that no congregant of the church can understand about the office of elder. There are struggles that... Unless you are an elder of the church, 
You cannot understand. That's what Paul is getting at. We are outliers and we are sufferers. We are public suffering servants being humiliated daily by slander, by liable. We don't dress well because many times we can't really afford it. Now in America, we are in a unique circumstance where you can go to Ross and get something that looks nice, which, which is where I shop, all right? <laughs> that and the sale racks at JCPenney. Amen, right? <laughs> That's quite the level of suffering, isn't it? And Paul let us know that he was figuratively applying these truths to himself. So what he expects when we hear this is that we take this and apply it to our own circumstances and our own positions. I mentioned a few parents and and teachers, politicians who are raised up, will be humbled in their own hearts and in the eyes of the public. No question about that. Some of you are thinking, Amen. Teachers, I mentioned teachers. Somebody who has a popular blog or a podcast will be humbled in his own heart and in the eyes of the public. That is something which awaits us all better to live in quiet humility. It is a sacrifice to be in the in the public eye because God will do the humbling for everyone. By the way, pastors serve public spectacles in two ways. One, as an example to the flock, not to exceed Scripture. Two, as a public suffering servant. And we read through the rest of Corinthians, as we read through, we're going to see that every Christian is actually called to these things. But only the elders of the church, only the apostles and the elders of the church are called to, to be these things in such a public way. But every Christian is called to be an example. And every Christian is called not to exceed Scripture, to be a person pursuing sound doctrine and practice. And every Christian is, is called to be a suffering servant. But only the apostles and elders are called to do so in such a public, public way. And as you think about your own lives. Uh, it's, it's plain how this applies to the elders of the church because that's what Paul is talking about. Not so plain how it applies to every single Christian in every circumstance. Since Paul has applied this figuratively to himself, it's important for, for us to all think about how this applies to us. Humility. Good. Seek to be humble in your heart. God, trust God to humble you in the eyes of everyone else if it needs to happen. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is entirely authoritative and sufficient. We are not, however, sufficient, so we need each other. Or should I say we need one another? There I am, grammar, not seeing myself. (laughs) And we also see here the... Reformation doctrine, soli deo gloria. Why are people humbled? Why are all people humbled in their own hearts and in the sight of all people eventually? Because God alone is to be glorified and Christ alone is to be exalted. He is the head of His church. We are co-workers and co-heirs together. We come now to our time of reflection.